As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And this week we're going to a place that I've been looking forward to getting inside for quite some time. It's London's Museum of Comedy. A lot of Twitter activity going on in the last weeks in response to our pub crawl. Thanks again to Vic Norman for that. And thanks to to Ravi for a particular comment, which kind of knocked my hat off with its kindness. If you want to get in touch with show ideas, show requests or general goodwill, it's at Londonist Sound. And so to this week's episode, a few minutes walk from Hoban Tube Station to a museum that runs no risk of taking itself too seriously. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a strong throw from your front door. Listen to this. Isn't that a beautiful sound? After four weeks, I think at least, of contending with traffic ambience in the background as we've made our way around London, uh, I am at last recording the show in a place that's designed, well, not designed originally for sound, but has certainly been adapted to make full use of its excellent acoustics. We're underground and we're in Bloomsbury and the place I'm in is a museum dedicated to comedy. We are in the theatre area of it, the performance area, with excellent acoustics and an excellent guest who is the assistant curator. He's David Hardcastle. Hi. Hi. Uh, and you're one of many, Dave. I could have had a pick of Davids today. Yeah, we've got several. There's several actual Davids who work here and the entire technical department who like to call each other Dave. <laughs> for, for, for what reason? <laughs> I have no idea. They're, they're techies. It's another world. Perhaps a, a good place to start would be to explain where we are, because it's not where you would necessarily expect to find a comedy venue. Uh, no, possibly not. We're in uh, technically the undercroft of St George's Church in Bloomsbury, which is uh, a beautiful Grade One listed Hawksmoor Church. 
and we're going to be looking up the steeple later on. We had a debate earlier on what was up the steeple. Yeah. Is it King George? Is it a unicorn? Is it none of the above? I think the unicorn's definitely still up there, and we've got a, a, a little plaster cast of the unicorn on the, uh, in the entrance as you come in. So I think that's still up there. I have no idea about King George. I'm not sure about the monarch. No. <laughs> Nor do I care. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not an auspicious start, is it? Apathy rules, I think that's the way. Good. 40 minutes of apathy coming up, listen. <laughs> uh, we, the place we're in, a uh, quick description. Well, it looks like the archetype of a underground, literally underground uh, comedy venue. The silver bar stool sits alone on a black stage. There's the microphone on a stand and a red velvet curtain. The ceiling is vaulted. The lights are low. There are pictures uh, by, I believe, a uh, photographer of some repute of uh, various comedy stars. Uh, yeah, Trevor Rogers, I believe. Um, yeah, it's a collection of pictures of, of uh, alternative comedians from the 70s. So you've got uh, Rick Mail, Alexis Sale, um, French and Saunders, I believe, Neil from the Young Ones, all collection of comedians from that era who were appearing at the comedy store players, I think. You come from a fine arts background. Now, I'm not sure whether to say that comedy is or isn't part of that, a natural offshoot or part of it? Or um, Yeah, well, my route into this was, obviously, like all, uh, all people who studied fine art at, at college, I went into graphic design and originally started designing stuff for the theatre, for Leicester, uh, well, originally for the Arts Theatre and Leicester Square Theatre, which are both owned by Martin Witt, who owns the Museum of Comedy. But I was also dabbling in comedy part-time, running things, and... Uh, I started running... We run a, a, a new comedian competition at Leicester Square Theatre, and I started running that, and I gradually sort of eased my way in, so I now work for Leicester Square and for the museum, doing still still designing things, but programming some comedy, running the competition, and doing essentially this. <laughs> or just a, a mixture of things, which is quite good fun, to be honest. I'll, I'll be honest, when I was thinking about what to expect... I mean, I had no idea what sort of thing to... Uh, imagine would be on display in a museum and uh, clearly we're in the part of the museum here that is all about comedy still happening but I was I was thinking about how you approach curating a comedy museum because the one thing that isn't there presumably is the is the joke itself or the the moment of laughter or surprise or whatever it might be so I imagine there are additional challenges to curating a comedy museum, uh, to, to curating some other thing that more naturally lends itself to historical items. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think there's a mixture of things, and, and I suppose one of the reasons we've got performance at space is because comedy is very current, it's always changing, so if we have people actually in here performing comedy, then that obviously brings that, as you say, that, that live element, the surprise sort of thing. Although we do have a lot of... We've got a, a huge amount of books and comedy records and things, so people can come in here, in here and listen to them. We've got an old record player, so you can play, you know, old, old, old LPs on there, or you can listen to uh, VHS tapes, you can watch people performing. So there's, there are several ways you can come in and actually see <laughs> quotation marks that I'm doing in the air, live comedy, whether it's actually live or recorded as live. I remember about, uh, it's probably longer than I think, 20 years ago there was that idea that comedy was the new rock and roll. And it seemed to me like that was a a long overdue acknowledgement of the live nature of, I guess, the majority of comedy. Sure, we get the stuff on the TV or in films, but there's uh, always been a huge grassroots, uh, whether it's musical or working men's club or comedy club, uh, uh, there's the circuit, there's a lot of live stuff going on. And it's not uh, in the the same way as uh, a music gig. Um, these can be very much a, a one-off thing, can't they? Mm. One, one night can be very different to the next, and they can, it, it doesn't really lend itself, perhaps, to being 
um, memorialised in a in a museum. Yeah, I think it is difficult. I, I think I think the advantage you've got if you're a musician is uh, the people come and see you and they want to hear the old favourites. Whereas if you're a comedian, the last thing you want is people sitting there going, "Heard it," you know, move on, do the next thing. I think comedy is quite difficult because you you've always got to be writing something new. You've always got to be coming up with with new ideas. Otherwise, it's I, I, people memorise jokes and and I think they're very they're very judgmental about things that they've heard before. So. Yeah, I think in that in that regard, it is a very difficult thing to do. So how do, uh, now I've I've uh, seen some of the exhibits. We'll be going and having a look at some of yeah. the exhibits in in just a sec. One of the first things that struck me was that you're dealing with comedy superstars. Uh, Tommy Cooper looms large as you come in. There's bits and pieces from the Carry On films from Spike Milligan and so forth. Is it difficult to find stuff for your museum from grassroots comics? Um, no, the main problem we have with, with space, as you say, it's not it's not the biggest space in the world. I mean, hopefully, as time goes on, we'll we'll be able to you know take over little other bits of uh, the space that we do have. But that's it's an ongoing project. But and, um, no, I, I think I think it's, we've got a certain core collection. Um, as I said, Martin Martin who owns has been working in comedy for thirty years, so a lot of it is stuff that he's collected and stored in his attic and garage. And that was that was basis of the whole thing um as soon as we set up people started coming forward saying we've got this and that and and, and what have you and like with spike milligan the stuff we've got from him are actually from his daughters who've who've basically said we'd rather have it here so people can look at it rather than stuck in our garage or whatever out of the way where, where nobody can can do it so a lot of people are coming forward um like i said the main problem is just finding places to put it all because they've got a huge collection of books that we don't have space for all of them um and a lot of people come. Uh, people get in touch and say, "Do you want this?" And we say, "Yeah, of course we do." And then we just have to. Basically, we need to take something out to put something in at the moment. But uh, as, as you know, if you go in, it's like visiting your granny's house or something. There is just stuff everywhere. <laughs> this is the classic museum problem, of course. That uh, I don't know if you're not maybe in the museum world. Why would you think of it? But the stuff on display in any museum and uh, in an awful lot of libraries as well it generally represents a very tiny percentage of mm-hmm. uh, of what they've actually got and are having to store carefully. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think we we can only ever represent a small number of the people that were here so it's useful to have the photographic exhibition so you can at least you know have people represented that way but um obviously there, there, i think like in any collection there are there are things missing that we'd like to have but um so if anybody's out there and has anything stored up from any of the greats of british comedy or then yeah come come and come and give it to us that'd be lovely we're going to go through now uh through the doorway here into the museum itself and uh it's Possibly, uh, well, you, you, you mentioned you've been talking about the lack of space, and I don't know whether I'm about to shame you by <laughs> mentioning that a previous uh, usage of this place was to store, well, corpses in coffins, and at one point there were 900 of them down here. Yeah, I'd like to make it clear that I wasn't working here then. It's actually it's going back quite quite a few years. But there, yeah. are, there are a surprising number of bad jokes that I could uh, <laughs> make connecting the two. Feel free. You will be the first or the last. <laughs> we, uh, but yeah, I think and and this um, we're actually in the performance space now, uh, which was the area that was used uh, apparently for for children's coffins. So you could you know stack them high, put them in. But it's more like a supermarket than, than anything else, really. I've, I've, I've heard, of course, of this chap not far from here, oh, what was it, a couple of hundred years ago, who was essentially chucking people in a pit underneath his house that he it sounded as though he was continuing to dig, and there were a lot of bodies down there. Um, but I had no idea that the lack of burial space had produced 
a situation where the bodies would have to be stored in their coffins but unburied. That's kind of remarkable. Uh, yeah, weirdly, because I, I live in Eastland, I was walking uh, when the tube strike was on. I was walking in and I came, uh, well, in, in a route that I wouldn't normally take. And there's actually, this, the church has actually got a burial ground that's about a quarter of a mile, half a mile away from the church. Because at the time there was there was nowhere nowhere to put it. There wasn't a there still isn't a churchyard as such. Um, so there's now a beautiful little park just a little a little bit east of here. We're moving into the museum. The good news is that the place made me smile when I walked in. I'm not exactly sure what quality it was, but there's some sort of strange recognition that this is a friendly place. Yeah, I think it is. It's, it's um, I think it's a bit strange when you you put anything into a space, you're never quite sure how it is. And like with the performer space, for instance, I think if you are a performer, there are some places you go in and you just immediately think, yeah, this is nice. And I think that's very much one of those. It's set up complete for comedy. It's a lovely place to perform. It's a really nice place to watch comedy. But but this, yeah, what the museum doubles as the bar area, and it's um, it, it's nice when we when when you have the full crowd and people. Are milling around before the show just having a drink chatting looking at the, at the exhibition uh, looking at the things we've got on the wall it's it's um yeah it's a really nice atmosphere in here what's the place that you would tend to start a tour of the museum at <laughs> well exactly where we are now. Oh, okay <laughs> chronologically we in, in the area next to the bars the sort of music hall section so this is this is where we've got some of the older stuff Including a lot of, <laughs> I should explain. I was I was leaning down to look at a picture of a musical star in her Edwardian finery, and I think David thought I was bowing to the musical star, and gave me a reverential silence in which to do that. Well deserved. Well deserved. So a lot of this stuff is from uh, the players the Players Theatre, which is uh, an organisation that's been going for a long, long time. Some listeners might remember the Good Old Days, which was a variety show which ran for years and years and years, which is on TV I think it was filmed at City Varieties in Leeds but it started at the Players Theatre in London and what we're staring at now are some pictures of some of the people who, who, who appeared there um, and it's probably including Clive Dunn I think he was Clive Dunn from Dad's Army who was 17 in this picture I think No way Yeah well, the strange thing about this guy is he has always famously played old men. Yeah. And so he just has... You just get the impression that he's immortal. <laughs> he might... Is he, is he still alive? I'm, I'm not sure. I feel he's not, but I might have to... Okay. I'm happy to say he is or isn't alive and definitely on a TV near you at some point. But in this picture, he's, he already looks as though he's getting ready to play... Uh, if that's 17, he looks like he's going to play uh, 40 or 50. Yeah, he does. He, he's blessed with that kind of face, isn't he? It's one of the things. And we've also got Hattie Jakes, who's obviously a stalwart of Carry On films and, and British TV and films for, for years and years and years. So she was one of the first people to appear there as well. Really, really interesting. If, I, if memory serves, and I hope it does, a really interesting triangle between her and Tony Hancock and John Le Mesurier. Yes, yeah. I've, she was married to John Le Mesurier and was having a fling with someone. I don't think it was Tony Hancock. Or was it not Tony Hancock? I don't think it was. Mm. Um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was just some a young actor. I actually can't remember who it was. That's impressive, isn't it? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent work. That raises a question, though. Are you the sort of person who digs into the biographies and the uh, private lives of comedians, or is it their public face, their work, that you're more interested in? I'm, I personally, I'm more interested in the, in the public thing. I think that you pick up bits and pieces about people and, and read about them. But, uh, yeah, I, for me, it's what they do. It's their performance that's, that makes... Them interesting, you know. It's it's. I don't know. You find things out about people, and, and you think, oh yeah, well that's obviously had an influence on the way they thought or did things. But it's it's, you know, what 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 lives on about them. I think if they're 
real is the work they do in, on stage. I'm presuming that you didn't find comedy through a musical, first of all. <laughs> what, was, <laughs> what was the... Uh, what was the comedic wave that uh, you surfed in on? Me? Uh, but I, well, I think like, when, as a kid I went to Panto and things like that. And I'm, I'm originally from Bradford, and uh, the Alhambra in, in Bradford has a great pantomime tradition. So growing up, I, I remember I saw Les Dawson perform there, I saw Charlie Drake, I saw I, I, all kinds of people, uh, even like all <laughs> very old musical stars in the sort of 80s who were still kicking around the circuit doing things would, would, would appear in, in, in Panto, and I think that... I think even, even as a kid, even watching watching pantomime, if you see somebody who's properly gifted with comedy, it sort of sticks in your mind. I think that's that's yeah, that's 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 probably my first sort of memory of watching 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 comedians. Then of course on, on TV and stuff. I remember you know Dave, people like Dave Allen and the Pythons, the usual the usual the usual suspects really. I got the impression that there's a bit of a north south divide of some sort in. Comedy, and I don't know whether that's fair, but I I feel like I see more of the Peter Kay kind of uh, comedy. That's it's a little bit friendlier, frankly. Uh, it seems maybe just superficially. Is that fair that there's differences in comedy geographically? Yeah, we're, we're definitely funnier in the north. I think that's <laughs> no. I think there's, there's a different there's a different attitude. I think from certainly as somebody I've been in London sort of twenty years now, and I think the main difference, not just in comedy but conversationally, is. Um, in the north, people seem to be a little bit more self-deprecating and don't really care where the joke comes from in conversation or comedy. As long as there's a joke at the end of it, whether you're the you're the victim of it or not, it's fine. Whereas in southerners, there seems to be more of a thing about having to be the winner. They have to be the person. It's more of a high status. You, you get high status comedy in the south, whereas in the north, it's more of a low status. Look at me, I'm an idiot kind of thing. But they're both they're both equally funny. They just they just come from different angles, and it also it's a bit. It's a bit of a generalisation, but I think you're right. I think there is. It's true enough. Now, does that? Well, that's interesting though, because th- does that then make your job? Uh, do you have to consider that sort of thing when you're programming comedy? No, I, I put in things that I like. To be honest, I, 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 I mean, obviously, you don't want. I, oh, I think I think when you put in comedy, you have to be true to what you believe. I, I've got quite a broad taste in comedy. I don't care whether it's one-liners or physical comedy or clowning or, or storytelling. I think comedy is either good or it's not good, and, but, it, but it's a very personal thing. So for me, if I go see a show I like and I'll, I'll put it in, and, and hopefully more people will like it than not. I don't think I, I don't think you can second guess people. I think that's that's how you end up with things like bland television by by going, this is what the public want, and we need to keep comedy within certain parameters. I'll, no, I just if something's funny, it's funny, and uh, not every, not everybody's going to like it, and I think. Attempting to do things that everybody likes is the road, the road to hell. <laughs> so don't do it. <laughs> let's uh, let's move around a little bit and see what else is here. Pictures of excellent pictures of Tommy Cooper. Yeah, these are lovely. These are really nice. It's all taken in one sitting by a guy called uh, John Claridge, and we've had this for a while. And it, it, it's all there. It's pictures of Tommy Cooper, who has a, a, a very sort of defined persona on, on TV as a, a big jolly man, uh, but these are very stark black and white images where he looks more, more like uh, one of the career brothers in, in, his, really in his later years. Yeah, he look, he's a proper East End gangster look about him. In, in the best way it's, it's sort of haphazard, so we've got next to that we've got a giant um, autograph picture of Mary Lloyd here, which is nice, one of the sort of original music hall stars. We were at her graveside 
a couple of weeks ago up at, uh, up at Hampstead Cemetery. Really? I've not been there. I've been there. Maybe I have. I've been there. I've been there. I'm just rambling now. Well, it's, nice, it's nice to see her in, uh, uh, <laughs> in her prime rather than a, a piece of uh, stone. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think the thing with music halls now is there's a few others. We've got, oh, we'll, we'll come round to that. We've got little, little titchy shoes around here. This because we're still in the music hall section. And little titch was one of 12 children. <laughs> have, you seen, have you heard of him before? No, I haven't. And what I was expecting as we rounded the corner was not what I saw. <laughs> <laughs> he was, I think he's one of, he, was, he was from uh, Kent, I think. He's one of 12 kids, uh, grew up in a pub. And his dad, and he was tiny, he was about four foot tall. And his dad used to get him perform on the bar, because that's what they did in those days, uh, exploit people. But he became a musical performer, and his, his trademark was wearing these giant shoes and um, there's a poster in the case here where he's leaning forward towards the top hat and he used to do this extraordinary dance in the shoes where he used to stand on the tip of the toes spin round, do all kinds of things and the climax of it was he used to bend all the way forward and just put the hat on without using his hands and stand up again and if you, if you google Little Titch uh, you can find this that one remaining bit of film of him doing that and the nice thing about it is he clearly makes a couple of mistakes in it but it's still, it's still an amazing thing I should explain as well that you wouldn't guess that Little Titch were that small from his appearance. He looks like a, a, an entirely ordinary person. <laughs> yeah, we need, we need a 50 pence piece in there for perspective. <laughs> Why have you got a seagull just here? <laughs> uh, this, is, uh, this is Russ Abbott's seagull. <laughs> this, uh, this seagull has appeared live at the London Palladium with Russ Abbott. And uh, I believe he used it to... I think it was when he was playing... Uh, was it Brooke Bond? Was it Brooke Bond? I can't remember. Yeah. The secret agent. He uh, very suavely struck a light off the cigarette, off the seagull to light a cigarette. Russ Abbott. I think he gets a bad press sometimes. I think it's, people think he's uh, rather cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, I, he was he was prime time TV. He was. I mean, I think he was probably one of the biggest stars in the country for for several years. And I, I, I think people get very judgmental looking back at, at comedy. There is some comedy that clearly lasts. You know, I think if I watched Laurel and Hardy, they, they still make me laugh hugely. Charlie Chaplin, not so much, but I think I think it's a lot of comedy. I think is very much of its time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And maybe Russ, Russ Abbott's one of those. But again, if you, if you look back and watch him, there are still a lot of things about that he does that are just so silly that you can't help but laugh about it, really. Isn't there a thing as well that we, we do, and not just restricted to comedy at all, but in this country, I think when somebody gets to a certain level of popularity or fame, then we start to have a grudge against them for that. I don't know whether maybe Michael McIntyre might fall into this sort of bracket because he rocketed to uh, success, and uh, you, you got the impression that there was just a, a, a whiff of a backlash against that rise to popularity. Yeah, it feels like. Uh, weirdly, I think the people that dislike McIntyre most are uh, comedians. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's, there's obviously an element of jealousy in there, but I think uh, if you perform comedy, I, I think McIntyre's brilliant at what he does. It's not particularly to my taste, and I think if you perform comedy, you can sort of see the wheels, you can see the mechanics of what he does, but but seeing how something works and actually going out there and doing it yourself are two very different things. And he is, But I think you're right. It's, I think once people get hugely successful, that then... 
everybody's queuing up to bring them back down also because people are hungry to get there themselves you know and it's uh, i think a lot of comedy especially on mainstream television feels like it's dead it's dead men's shoes and until people are there they're there forever and until you can get rid of them nobody else is you know coming in and taking over that spot so it's um, it's a very competitive thing i want to know what you're seeing when, when you say you can see the wheels turning what sort of thing are you perceiving there Oh, well, well, with Michael McIntyre specifically, uh, a friend of mine uh, got some work as a, as a, a fat McIntyre tribute act. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> believe, believe it or not, there's a weird little underground after dinner circuit uh, of people doing impressions of, uh, fat impressions of comedians. So there's a fat McIntyre and uh, he, <laughs> he did it. And I saw him doing little five and ten minute tryouts at various comedy clubs where he was brilliant he was saying the thing about McIntyre is you, you you see something you make a noise and then you do the joke and you're saying this is the, the mechanics of the McIntyre joke like, here's a thing here's a noise to go with that thing here's my funny thing about that thing right and that is essentially how the McIntyre jokes work and in his five minutes when he was remembering to do the impression he was brilliant and it, it, was, it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen and then I saw him a couple of months later after he'd done his first corporate gig having to do it for half an hour I said, how did it go? He said, I completely died. It was, it was horrific. He said, for five minutes, I was great. And then people just got bored with me. So and knowing how something is and doing it, different things entirely. This, McIntyre's very, a very skillful comedian. Whether you like him or not, he's very good at what he does. Have you tried your hand yourself on stage? Uh, yeah, I, I, I perform occasionally. Uh-huh. I, 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 over several years, I forged a reputation amongst my friends as the, the laziest comedian on the circuit. <laughs> Well, as in not doing any gigs? Yep. <laughs> so the, the on-the-circuit the on the part of that is in dispute by the sounds of it. <laughs> uh, performing comedy is mostly admin, believe it or not. It's, 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 and if you're not very good at admin, you don't get as many gigs as maybe you should. And also not writing any jokes. Uh, that's, that, that was another, another piece of my armoury. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on around. In fact, it, maybe uh, now is an excellent time to remind ourselves of who's paying for all this here comes a, a short commercial message we have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice all you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook there are over 150,000 to choose from the 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period and there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. The Sound of London. Londonist Out Loud with N. Quentin Wolfe. Listen free every week on your favourite podcast platform. Subscribe via iTunes and get great extra content at Londonist.com. Tweet the show at Londonist Sound and see pictures of all our guests on the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and I am at the Museum of Comedy and with me David Hardcastle who is admiring his <laughs> exhibits. <laughs> well, that sounds rude. <laughs> well, they're not. They're mostly they're Martin's exhibits. I just, I just help out. Well, that so sounds even worse if yeah. I say you're admiring Martin's exhibits. <laughs> if you've met him, you'd know exactly what I mean and how apt that is. <laughs> we've got a we've got a six a six necked guitar which is instantly recognisable as a Bill Bailey special. That's right. It's it's uh, which was weirdly we can't find a clip of it online anywhere. We're actually using it. So, but it is Bill Bailey's guitar, and and he donated it to us, which is nice. Bill, as I said, we're we're sort of part of Leicester Square Theatre, so a lot of 
a lot of, a lot of big names uh, performing Leicester Square Theatre. So we've we've had donations from quite a few of them, and this is and this is from Bill, presumably because it's too big to carry about and use. <laughs> oh, so this is a storage facility now. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's going to re- re- revive the six snake guitar uh, bit, but until then, I think it's with us. Yeah. Has anyone tried playing it? No. <laughs> <laughs> or even picking it up, as far as I can tell, it's huge. We've got spitting image puppets further down. I recognise Kenneth Williams. Yeah, yeah, we've got Kenneth Williams, Frankie Howard on the other side of the case with his amazing eyebrows, and in other bits of the museum as well. We've also got Ken Dodd and uh, Tommy Cooper in his own little section. Now, this suggests to me that you've got relationships with uh, big comedy vehicles. Um, okay, we've got, I think we've got uh, relationships ships with people who were formerly related with big comedy vehicles. We've got all kinds of relationships with all kinds of different people who, who, who variously donate things to us. I know from a little bit of work around recording studios that trophies are apt to be collected by musical performers <laughs> and their entourage. Is the same thing going on with comedy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of a diplomatic answer then, but there is not. Yes, people. I think people people forget things and people borrow things and they don't get taken back, do they? I think that's how that works. Well, a case in point might be the corner uh, couch. Now, this is a banquette. It looks like it's from a pub. Yes, it is. Uh, Does the pub know about this? <laughs> yeah, um, Spike Milligan actually... This, 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 it's a corner seat. It's a lovely... Uh, Timeless piece of furniture from the corner of a pub, and I've forgotten the name of the pub. A pub called the Grafton, I believe, in West London, and it's where Spike Milligan actually used to sit and write the Goon Show. So this is this is the piece of furniture. this is this is where he used to sit and do it. When the pub was refurbished, he he actually bought this piece of furniture himself and had it in his house. Um, after he died, it went to his daughters, and they've got in touch and asked us if, if we'd like to have it. So that's our. So if if you want to come and sit and do some writing, work on your next Edinburgh show or your hit sitcom you can come and do it in the same seat that uh, Milligan wrote the Goon show in and we've also got his record player weirdly which is nice this is uh, <laughs> this is just a, a, an old scratched record player where he used to sit in his house and listen to presumably while he wrote more shows on, on these on these bit of furniture so really you ought to be able to just sort of plug yourself in lower your behind onto the banquette and yeah genius should flow yeah, hopefully, hopefully. You can either picture that or you can picture him going, being driven quietly crazy by the ridiculous schedule he had to write the show on. Because he essentially wrote the shows on his own and they were doing them one, once a week and they weren't all written before they started recording them. So he, he literally used to sit and have a week to write them in all uh, by himself. Uh, so, is, oh, that's, so is that where you get that kind of anarchic vibe is it because so. they're ad-libbing like crazy i think well uh, possibly i think i mean we've got we have actually got some of the original goon show scripts here as well um so you can have a look at those but um yeah i suspect it was it's relatively speaking an easier ride for the other people in the goon show whereas spike had to do it and then turn up and also perform the things that he'd just written and then obviously once the, the show's recorded start again on the next one it's um a punishing schedule i think to say the least out of the corner of my eye, as we've been talking, two <coughs> costumes have been finding their way into my peripheral vision. One of them, it looks like a patchwork greatcoat. And the other one, now, I haven't read the label, and I can't from this distance. This has got to be something to do with Danny LaRue. Yep, that's uh, Danny LaRue's costume, or one of Danny LaRue's costume, which is... Uh Exactly what you'd expect. <laughs> yes, yeah, so white ostrich feathers, lots of bling, uh, gold high heel boots. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's the bling sort of hits you high first. The, 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 it, the other thing you notice is it's massive. <laughs> it's, it is. He's, yeah, I think he's, he was quite a big man, Danny the Roo, and it is. I'm so tempted to slip into it, but I'm not, I'm not sure about Or if it would work on a podcast. Was he as popular as some of the other acts that we've been describing? I, yeah, I, I think um, I read somewhere that for a couple of years, Daniel LaRue was the highest paid entertainer in the country. He, he was mainstream TV, worked a lot in clubs, did, you know, did his own sort of review shows, was, was absolutely massive, yeah. I, I, I think, again, it's, you look back, we were talking about McIntyre earlier and how big he is, but if you look back at some of them, the Victorian ones, some of the musical stars, uh, there, are, there are people there that were at the top of the game for 20, 30 years, earning the sort of money, relatively speaking, the same sort of money that, that the big stars earn now, but with much longer careers because they weren't on TV, they tore they the, the theatres and, and what have you, and then ridiculous amounts of money. And uh, I suppose Daniel LaRue was probably at the back end of that kind of thing where there weren't so many TV channels, so if you were a star on TV then... You were a star everywhere, you know, everybody knew you, and he was huge. And the, the downside of that is almost too obvious to say, but the downside of being seen by everybody is that your material's been heard in that one sitting by everybody all at once. Yeah, I guess so. Although, yeah, I, I, obviously at that stage you get people writing for you as well, but as well as we done the he was singing songs as well, which is obviously cheating in comedy, so you, <laughs> you don't need as many jokes to fill the time with that. But yeah. Uh, where should we go next? Wherever you like. What should we do? No, I'm following you. <laughs> <laughs> that has got to be that has got to be the best answer I've ever had on a where should we go next question. <laughs> hey, let's keep it slick. Let's go to the Russ Abbott case. <laughs> well, there really is an entire case dedicated to the guy. Yeah, I mean, this is. I said when I think when Martin first started working, uh, he, he was doing a lot on literally end of the peer shows in, in Blackpool and one of the people he worked a lot with a lot was Russ Abbott so there's quite a lot of memorabilia from him here there's a couple of his, his scout uniform his uh, oh I forgot the name of the character his teddy boy uniform and just lots of bits and pieces a picture of a picture of uh, uh, the seagull at the London Palladium is in there is he still performing? I have no idea I, I think th- he's still he's doing some serious work wasn't he? was he in Last of the Summer Wine? Oh, really? I think so. Huh. I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't watch it, but I think he was. Now, that is a fine example of something that... That's, in light of what we were saying about scripts and material yeah. and using it all up, it seems to me that that has just been a constant for, oh, I don't know what it is, 30 years or something, 35 years? I've, yeah. I've no idea. But they haven't seemed to vary the jokes one iota, just the same product every week. Yeah, it feels... It, there was, there, that's definitely a show with a formula, wasn't it? They would have, something would happen... But then something else would happen. Then Compo would go down the street in a bath, and that and that was as far as I could tell. If it works, it works. yeah, exactly. It works. And I did actually did another little interesting fact that years ago, because it's because it's got a laugh track on it, they used to get a laugh track by screening it at the photography museum in Bradford, so the laugh track would sound northern. That's interesting. I've often wondered how uh, how the is that the, the usual way to get a laugh track? Because I always wonder whether they just have uh, people laughing at whatever it might be, and then just uh, sell a tape it on. Yeah, I'm well. I'm, I am sometimes wondering what people are laughing at with these certain things. But yeah, I guess so. It's, uh, yeah, I don't work in TV, but I think that's that's a standard way of doing things. It must be. There's nothing eerier, is there, than watching a TV show where the laughter obviously doesn't belong to yeah. what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I quite like watching comedy in bemused silence for, for the most part. 
Um, any tips on just on that uh, score? Is there anything you can do if you've got a performer on live who is, for whatever reason, failing to ignite the crowd? Yeah. Is there anything you can do to help them along? No, just sit back and enjoy it. I think, it's, especially as anybody who performs comedy knows that at some point you will die. You will, you will. Everybody has a, a bad gig, and you just have to embrace it. I, I think once you've been doing it long enough, if you've been doing it a while and you know that your material's okay and you've done well before. You know it's not the, the joke's fault, and it's probably not the audience's fault. It's just one of those things. So you just think, ah, leave it, forget it. Uh, the, the, the only thing you can do is it's up to the, whoever's on after. So if it's an MC on after them, then they just have to pick it up a bit and, and get the audience going again and, and move it along. I think acknowledge it is the best thing. You have to you get <laughs> if you're still there going, no, I'm brilliant, and it's uh, it's all your fault, and you're not going to get anywhere. If you, if you go, yeah, sorry guys, it's not working, then I think it puts everybody at ease a little bit. Is it possible to pull it back from that point? Uh, it is. Yeah, I saw. I, I, well, I, I booked Paul Foot to do a show in, in Edinburgh uh, as a as a closing act, and there was no there was no show after us, so, so that was fine. So he did his twenty minutes to close, to silence, complete silence. Uh, they hated him, and he then did another twenty minutes explaining why they weren't laughing at his first twenty minutes, and completely took the roof off. It was amazing. But then that's. Paul Foote, he's very, he's very good. <laughs> Not everybody can do that. The worst thing is watching some brand new act performing the science for three or four minutes and then thinking they can do another ten minutes and, and make everybody love them. They can't. <laughs> Get off. <laughs> that is the official line. Yeah, yeah, really. Because that's, that, honestly, that's one of my biggest anxieties, and I mean this as an audience member, and it makes me sometimes too anxious to go and see something live rather than watching it on a screen. Is knowing that things are supposed to be coming off in a different way and feeling that disconnect and feeling the stage seem ever further away. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think again, that's 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 one of the exciting things about live comedy. You know, it's not sanitized, it's not removed. It is you, you are very much there in the moment, and it can. I mean, most audiences are very good. They want you to succeed. You, you know, you don't really get audiences that are being for blood so much. That so you've you've got that going for you, but. As I said, it's comedy is so subjective, and especially if people are doing something that's slightly left field, that's not, you know, just straight up telling jokes. You, you, it can definitely again, Paul Foot. I, I, I watched for years doing nothing, and then suddenly he found a way to connect with the audience without necessarily changing what he was doing, but just found a way in the first couple of minutes, going, "Yeah, come with me, come on board with this." And and since then, I've I've, I've rarely seen him have a bad gig. I think I think a lot is just down to experience and you know learning your craft. Really, I think that. That's sort of underestimating in comedy, especially now when people get thrown onto TV. I think sometimes before they're ready. I think it used to be that you had to serve an apprenticeship of 10 or 15, 20 years. So with whatever you think of the comedians back in the 70s, you rarely saw somebody that wasn't middle-aged and experienced, you know, in the art of what they were doing. Mm. Whereas now, I think sometimes you see people that are clearly out of the depth who are... Anyway, <laughs> you know what I mean. A glance at the watch shows we're coming up to the end of the show already so probably a good moment to ask about what's going on in london as far as comedy goes which is a, maybe too big a question i don't know <laughs> well clearly the places to go are uh, well here at the museum as in a lot of places we've got uh, we're currently in a, a season of post edinburgh festival shows so uh, most nights in september and i think every night in october we've got two shows from of people who've been performed in Edinburgh and they're coming down and doing it here. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? Does that mean they've been supercharged and road-tested and, and they're coming down here and this is 
good hot material. Yes, exactly. Um, so they've all been performing the shows for a month in Edinburgh. They're all polished, slick, learnt, which is always a bonus. And <laughs> they're coming down. And uh, pretty much this is this is generally speaking your last chance to see them doing those shows. And certainly, if you, yeah, if you look on our website, there's, there's a list of, of very very good shows that run here, and also at our other theatre, the Leicester Square Theatre. <laughs> Downstairs in the lounge, there's a lot of Edinburgh shows on there as well. Who would you circle in your diary? Um, as I've put most of them in, I can't really choose to... Although one... I, I, the, the, yeah, the, that's a totally unfair question. It's it? very unfair. Although, Out of the performers that you've booked, which is the best? <laughs> I don't know. If any of them are listening and they've got any spare cash, uh, this, is the, this is the time to fish it out of your wallet. Um, the next one, I think this week we've got, uh, who's worth seeing, is uh, Tim Shishodia. I said earlier we run a new comedian competition at Leicester Square. Uh, Rob Beckett was our first winner of that. I think uh, Tim won the second one. And we were talking about the comedy industry, and, and we've recently set up... A, this, this summer we, we ran a competition here called Old Comedian, which is not old in terms of years. You only have to be 35. But it's for comedians that have been going at least five years, who have been sort of bypassed by the industry. And uh, Tim, after triumphantly winning New Comedian several years ago, entered and won Old Comedian <laughs> in the summer. And I saw his show in Edinburgh, and it's lovely. It's just a lot of very silly jokes and a lot of good fun and well worth seeing. So if you're around on Friday, I don't know when this goes out, but if you're around on Friday... Uh, it goes out on Saturday. Uh, you missed him. He was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot. I, I mean, just check it out on the website. There's a lot of... Well, I think what was nice for me in Edinburgh this year is there's a lot of very silly things going on. People who are just doing an hour of being funny, which is... There's a, there's a strange thing about the Edinburgh Festival where a lot... You know, there's this convention that it has to have a, a through line, a story, beginning, middle, end. You, there has to be progress. There has to be a lesson learned at the end of it, which is fine. But... Um, it's really nice to see people just being funny for an hour and disregarding all that convention. And there's a lot of that this year. And we've, I've booked quite a few of them in. So if you want an hour of silly, I think this is a good place to come. What better way to finish off? Uh, that, that was the act you could have seen. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see again. And we'll see again. And uh, the uh, reminder of the, uh, the website. It's just museumofcomedy.com or leicestersquaretheatre.com. They're linked. Well, David Hercastle, thanks very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to David Hardcastle. Thanks to, to Mark Barrett and Bernie Barkley. The theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm then Quentin Wolf. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.